0: Summer. Welcome to another one of our podcasts, which we are dedicating to coronavirus. Um, we are lucky today, um, Brian and I are lucky to be joined by Dina Battle, who's president of uh, KC Cure, which is a patient advocacy group based in the US. And today we're going to talk um, exclusively about kidney cancer with a really patient focus, trying to answer some of the questions. Some of this may be applicable to other cancer patients, but uh, essentially it's very kidney focused. Dina, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for, for having me and for taking this time to really address some of the significant concerns that patients have right now.
2: Brian, why
0: don't you kick off with the first
2: question? Yeah. So Dean, I thought we'd sort of take a a patient journey, if you will, from patients who have localized disease, maybe thinking about surgery and the timing, and then we'll sort of move into patients post-surgery and then obviously talk about metastatic disease and and treatment implications. So for patients with localized kidney cancer uh, of whatever sort who are waiting for surgery, maybe have a surgery planned, et cetera, what, what kind of concerns and questions are you getting from your community?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, these are people who are, it's a really high anxiety time. They've just heard the words, you have cancer, which is terrifying. And that's true, whether it's a one centimeter mass or something larger. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, the added stress of this pandemic is really tough. And we're making some decisions in the in the medical community. You know, some some folks are starting to delay surgeries so that hospitals can be focused on coronavirus. And I think those patients are really asking if I'm scheduled for surgery in the next few weeks and it needs to be postponed, am I safe? What should I do?
0: I mean, Dina, one of the things which which I think about in this setting and what's happening in Europe, I think is probably a couple of weeks in front of what's going to happen in the US is we're beginning to get into an environment where the hospitals inevitably have infected patients in them. Mm -hmm. And we know that patients, cancer patients and patients with comorbidities, uh, and we know, of course, surgery is potentially immune-suppressive. We know that that these patients are at higher risk. And there's a very complicated risk-benefit balance And because of the uncertainty of what hospitals will look like in three weeks' time, I'm currently of the thinking, which is unless you really need to have something done now, I would not want to be in the middle of a storm in three weeks' time, which we don't know what it will look like. And what do you think about that statement?
1: I think that's absolutely right. You know, I think what would help provide some comfort to those patients is really – hearing a little bit about um, the risk of cancer growth during that time, you know, what, would what does it mean for them for that tumor to wait six more weeks for their surgery? Um, so what's I think their I, risk for cancer? Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think I can comment on that. So there's not a great body of literature for observation of localized renal cancer. There is a, a fair body of literature about, as you know, the small renal mass defined as four centimeters or less multiple um, case series and institutional reports. And it looks like all the data really points to about two two to three millimeters of growth per year, not centimeters, but millimeters. Mm-hmm. So how that applies to, say, a six centimeter mass or a 10 centimeter mass, we don't know. But there's no real reason to think that small renal masses, you know, that have a, a wildly different biology than larger renal masses. It's really just a matter of when patients walk in the door, at least one factor, So that's, and the risk of metastatic disease in patients who are observed for small renal mass is less than 1%. It's almost anecdotal. So that's the only data that I can think of, you know, that would provide some sort of quantitative reassurance that for most renal masses, these aren't growing by the day or by the week, which is what I would think if I were a patient, of course, Uh, Mm -hmm. they've probably been growing for many, many months to years. And so if you think about six weeks or 12 week delay, it's a, a small fraction of the you know, the tumor lifespan, so to speak. And I totally agree with Tom that I would not want to be in a hospital where no doubt there will be infected patients and, and providers, you know, over the next couple months. Um, and, you know, patients whose immune systems are compromised are going to be at higher risk. And, you know, very likely after a major surgery that would apply.
0: Um, Brian, one of the things that we're hearing from other tumor groups is, could we give neoadjuvant treatment to delay onset of the surgery? Yeah, Um, what's your opinion of that?
2: Well, I mean, we've done a lot of neoadjuvant work. You know, not so much to delay surgery to to enable partial nephrectomy or just you know in an investigative setting. I don't think in a patient with localized disease I would do it for that reason. If we're talking about a patient with metastatic disease for debulking nephrectomy, that's a whole different discussion we can maybe get to later that's not really neoadjuvant, but that's a different discussion. But if somebody has a six centimeter renal mass and is going to be two months delayed for a surgery, I would not just start them on drug. Again, we don't know how our systemic therapy affects risk. Um, I, you know, to me, to me, there's no benefit and there's risk.
0: And Brian, let's say more advanced cancer, T3, T4, um, T3B, not T you know T4A, those sorts of cancers, Is there any,
2: is there such thing as emergency kidney cancer surgery? Well, you know, patients who have, you know, gross hematuria, you know, pain, acute pain, those are patients that we, you know, would, would prioritize. And, you know, again, it's, it's all benefit risk in our business. And so if, you know, if somebody has, you know, mild asymptomatic hematuria, I'm not sure that's a reason to take the risk. If it's gross hematuria requiring transfusion, And requiring them to go to the hospital, et cetera, you know, then you could imagine that the other circumstances, you know, patients with substantial tumor thrombi that have a risk of embolizing, um, you know, obviously that's a big complicated surgery, but that those might be patients where I would lean more towards doing it, although I would say there's no absolutes here. Dina, what
0: other questions have you got around this issue, around the surgical issue?
1: Well I think that question I think you guys did a great job of sort of summarizing that for for a patient who has a, a small localized mass that probably there is a a greater risk of having surgery right now and that there might be even a benefit to to waiting 6 or, or 12 weeks if their post if their surgery needs to be postponed so I think that's that's really helpful um in this space, you know, we also have quite a few patients who are just recovering from surgery. They had surgery maybe in the last six or 12 weeks. And they're also wondering, um, because they're post-surgery, are they at higher risk of, of developing COVID, of acquiring COVID-19? Um, and are there actions that they might want to take to protect themselves?
0: So, so my opinion of that is that they probably are at slightly higher risk. Um, But the likelihood of that risk is to do with um, the potential immunosuppressive effects of surgery, which are actually probably pretty minimal. There's obviously this cancer issue, um, increased age. One of the things that's really clear at the moment from the data, one of the few things that's very clear is that it looks like um, young people um, are um, associated with um, a high risk of infection but not a high risk of mortality and age seems to be a very powerful driver around mortality and the reason for that is probably to do with the host's immune response and it looks like that's increased in cancer patients. Other comorbidities like hypertension seem to be quite important as well and so each individual patient will have a different risk and my advice to post-operative patients would be to be self-isolating, particularly soon after an operation, to be self-isolating for the next few weeks while there's this period of uncertainty. What is likely to happen with time is over the summer, I think we'll get better at looking after patients and there'll be a lot more certainty of what hospitals will look like. So again, I wouldn't want to be in a position right now where I was in and out of hospital on a regular basis or indeed um, in a hospital environment. Um, and I'd be self isolating at home. I'd be speaking <laughs> to the medical team by phone rather than coming into hospital. Um, and I might delay my CT scan you know, for relapse of my three month scan by four to six weeks, just to avoiding that. So I think isolation and minimal hospital contact is what I'm recommending at the moment.
2: Yeah, I would, I would agree with all the above. Um, you know, limiting going to the hospital is, is good advice for everybody, <laughs> no matter mm-hmm. what circumstance you're in. And also self-isolation is good advice for everybody. Um, you know, whether they're pre-surgery, post-surgery, or frankly, not a cancer patient you know, I think it's gotten to that level, you know, and so, but especially post-surgery, you know, sometimes they need staple removed. And I know that, you know, we're starting to get creative with telehealth and and other things and um, having uh, advanced practice providers go to patients' homes, you know, so I don't, you know, from a post-surgical standpoint, if somebody needed staple removed, you know, maybe they can ask their doctor's office if there are, you know, mobile options, so to speak. It's not widely done because it, We haven't had the strain on the healthcare system that forces it, but you know, if Mm -hmm. there's any good that comes of it, that maybe we'll get much better at doing that as opposed to dragging everybody, you know, into the hospital. Um, but I agree with what Tom said.
1: Yeah. I think that's really reassuring for some of these folks. Um, they're, they're really afraid and nervous that some, that this has put them in a a much different category. And I, I think what I hear you guys saying is that, um, of course, you're, they are at slightly higher risk. They need to self isolate, which is what we honestly all should be doing. Um, and you know, if they can avoid going back to the hospital, that's that's something we they can all focus on. So I think it's a, it, it helps them think about how they want to manage, you know, their post surgery recovery. I think that's helpful.
2: So Dina, let's move on to me- the metastatic setting. And you had sent Tom and I some questions mm-hmm. from your Actually, constituents. If- if you don't mind,
1: I just I want to come back to to just the, probably the third a third area within the localized disease. Um, these are patients who are you know maybe four or five years post nephrectomy, um, and they want to know: Does having one kidney mean that I'm somehow at higher risk of either acquiring the disease or having complications from it?
0: Yeah. So the answer yeah. To that question is that um, there there is some data coming out at the moment to suggest that while most of the symptoms appear to be respiratory and the need for ventilators is being well broadcast, um, there do seem to be some cardiac and renal complications associated with the infection. And so while I would say overall, there is no increased risk of of um, getting infected compared to anyone else obviously and washing hands is incredibly important the process of getting infected seems to be droplet rather than aerosol so um, touching infected areas seems to be the way is. so cleaning your hands washing surfaces is incredibly important but there are there do seem to be some renal complications associated with um with uh with the with the virus and and so it's not a purely respiratory driven, driven um,
2: symptomatic disease. Yeah, I agree. I don't know that they're at higher risk. I mean, it, you know, the other way to think about it is every, everybody's at high risk. And so, you know, the, the common sense precaution that Tom notes, et cetera, and the isolation, again, I think it applies broadly, but I don't think it, um, in terms of risk of infection, applies anymore to the patients with one kidney. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I would agree with that. The bottom line is the advice you've been given by the uh, your healthcare providers is correct whether
2: you have one or two kidneys yeah or none okay <laughs> so okay let's move on to metastatic disease i'm just looking at the questions you sent
1: mm-hmm.
2: um we'll just take them in order it says if i'm on immunotherapy treatment is my immune system stronger or weaker <laughs> yes. so that's a good one mm-hmm. um you know, when I'm explaining immunotherapy to patients, I say, you know, we're going to rev up your immune system to hopefully fight the cancer. And and so, Mm -hmm. but, but it's, it's really tumor specific. I'm not aware of data that immunotherapy is, you know, quote unquote, strengthens patients' immune systems against the virus. Um, We're going to do a a separate podcast tomorrow talking with some experts preclinical and otherwise, you know, looking at, is there a detrimental effect to suppression of viruses in patients on immune therapy. I'm not aware of great human data. There's preclinical data, you know, in mouse models, but there's not great human data. Uh, Tom, what do you think?
0: I was speaking to some colleagues about this earlier. Um, Coronavirus is a virus, which um, we we haven't been exposed to previously, but there are many other viruses, influenza is being one, that has been kicking around for a while and that we don't have increased influenza deaths associated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Hmm. So while we don't know the answer to the questions, and there is a theoretical reason why if you inhibited PD-1 or indeed pdl one or CTLA-4, that you could have an exacerbated immune reaction, so a more of immune reaction, and that can be counterproductive. So while there is a theoretical risk that there could be a higher immune response that could be counterproductive, the data that we currently have from an epidemiology and virus perspective doesn't suggest that immune therapy patients are dying from other viruses, and therefore there's no reason why they should be dying specifically from this one. Yeah, I agree.
1: That's really interesting. Um, and that, I think that's, that's something really helpful for people to think about. So generally speaking, if someone's on um, an immune treatment, whether it's nivolumab monotherapy or, or combination epinevo. Um, There's there's nothing really to suggest that they're at at, at a specific higher risk because of that treatment.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's a true statement. Mm -hmm. You know, um, obviously, especially with combination, patients can get sick. They can get you know pneumonitis. They can get other you know other illnesses that could then subsequently compromise you know their ability to Mm -hmm. fight off a a third infection, so to speak. But just just being on it, I don't know that there's great clinical data. There's not clinical data and you just to summa- just to summarize
0: it in two set- sentences, the likelihood is that because they have an underlying cancer, they are at increased risk sure it 's theoretically possible that being on immune therapy could increase risk that, that risk further. It may also decrease that risk, and as it currently stands, we simply don 't know so if I was on immune therapy i wouldn 't necessarily stop it, mm-hmm. but I certainly would be isolating myself from infection, and for example. I would be looking at having six weekly pembrolizumab rather than three weekly pembrolizumab. And indeed, if I missed the cycle of nivolumab here and there, that would be no problem for me at all in the short term. I would be very pragmatic about trying to avoid an intense hospital environment. One of the things that worries me most is in our chemotherapy or immune therapy day units, we have lots of patients going through, lots of patients waiting. We have some patients who are probably unwell, and we don't know who the infected ones are and who the infected ones are not. And so minimizing your exposure to healthcare is sensible. And this is a conversation that you need to have with your doctor.
2: And so, Tom, there's, Dina, you had sent a question, which I think Tom just answered. Should I consider suspending treatment during the outbreak? Do the risks with treatment outweigh the benefits? And I think, as Tom Mm -hmm. said, it's It's about staying away from, you know, hospitals and crowded outpatient settings as much as possible. Um, You know, there's a whole field of study around suspending immunotherapy in patients who are doing well, and we don't have a good handle on that. But my general thought is we should give patients the least amount of therapy that they need. And so, as Tom says, you know, missing a dose of maintenance Nevo here or there or Pembro in your VEGF, IO regimen, et cetera, um, it's just not gonna be a big deal. But those drugs hang around for months. They, they saturate mm-hmm. T cell receptors for maybe a year. So even if you miss a dose or two and stay away during this, um, it's hard for me to believe that it's gonna have any negative impact on the disease. So again, it's an individual decision, but I would err on the side of, of caution. Uh, And and a related question, and then Tom, maybe you can comment um, in terms of uh, effects on the immune system was about sort of non-immune treatment. So TKIs, um, you know, lenvatinib, everolimus, et cetera. And I think it's kind of the same answer. There's no real direct evidence that I'm aware of that patients um, certainly have stronger immune systems, but in taking care of many, many of those patients over the years, I don't think that they get you know, opportunistic infections at any higher rate than the general public. Tom, what do you think? So I would
0: agree with that, Brian. I think that the, the, the story there for me, I mean, I saw a patient on Tuesday uh, last week and he had intermediate risk disease. Um, He had, you know, it was good intermediate risk disease. He had his inflectomy still in place and had been recently diagnosed. Um, You know, there was a debate about him coming up and starting immune combination therapy. Um, and coming back and lots of different appointments or just starting sunitinib or pisopinib. And I had the discussion with him and he said, I, want to, I don't want to be in hospital for the next six weeks. Give me a cycle of sunitinib. I'll do a three-weekly blood test at home. I'll have my blood pressure monitor with my GP. Mm-hmm. And we probably will do a telephone conference with him in six weeks' time and send him his subsequent drug. And he may not need to come to hospital at all over that period, we, as you say, will be doing video conferencing with him. We might be sending nurses to go and see him. Clearly, if he runs into problems, that will change. The toxicity associated with sunitinib and um is chronic, um, but relatively easy to manage and probably doesn't need the same skill as immune therapy. Starting immune, combined immune checkpoint inhibition at this point, there's probably a one in three chance of needing to come into hospital the next um, next six to 12 weeks and i'm not convinced that's a great idea as it currently stands so i think the balance even the balance of how we approach these patients number one if you've got good risk do you really really need to start therapy or can you go on a surveillance program number two is if you've got good or good stroke intermediate risk disease would is immune combination therapy the right treatment for you right now I don't know if it is maybe. So I think that that this is a really important piece in terms of how you consult with the patient and what their expectations are. If you're, if you're above the age of 70, you've got metastatic cancer and other comorbidities and bits and pieces, you know, your risk currently of running into problems when you catch this virus is probably quite high.
2: Yeah, no, I agree, Tom. I think some of those considerations we should have always, like, does the patient really need to start treatment, right? I mean, that's true before this outbreak and after, but I think the additional consideration is how many times does that patient have to come into a healthcare environment with potentially increased risk of infection? And how likely is this regimen to result in hospitalization, where presumably the risk goes up, you know, even more? And those, those weren't really things certainly that I thought about, you know, before the last week or so.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one question real quick with linvatinum everolimus, just because you have everolimus, is there anything different with everolimus in terms of immune suppression that, that you guys have thought about or that, um, that you would think about with patients yeah, I mean, in that combination? I, don't, I, don't,
2: I haven't given a ton of that drug, but I've given, you know, a fair amount. And again, I've never really noticed that such patients, despite it being a, you know, cousin of tried and true immunosuppressants, never really thought that patients had more infection you know, bacterial, viral, or otherwise, and I'm not aware of data that would suggest that either.
0: Um, Brian, I'm going to sort of not disagree with you, but I'm going to add a a word of caution there, is that it is obviously a torc one mTOR inhibitor, and it does, I know it's given at, uh, compared to breast cancer and other cancers, there's a lot of dosing issue, but it's a drug which we don't need to give um its role in the pathway is pretty questionable as it currently stands and i would say there are attractive alternatives to giving an mTOR talk one inhibitor as it currently stands so yes if that's where you need to be but you know we'd be using fourth or fifth line probably and under those circumstances you need to have a difficult discussion about the role of fourth or fifth line therapy during a pan- during an
2: infective pandemic <laughs> yeah fair enough Mm-hmm. Dina.
1: Yeah, is monotherapy. Yeah. I was going to say. And one other question. Oh no, I was going to say
2: major things that that we haven't covered. Any major areas or specific questions that we haven't covered?
1: Yeah. Well, one question, Tom. You mentioned that you know that hypertension is one of the big concerns for for patients with coronavirus, and we do see we do see hypertension as a side effect of TKIs. And I just I'm sure that that will catch patient's attention and I wondered if you could comment on that with hypertension that's associated uh, with TKIs and is that something patients should be worried about?
0: Yeah I mean there's uh, I think it's um, underlying cardiovascular disease and hypertension is a component of that is uh, seems to be a risk factor um there is um, a debate on ongoing about how the virus enters the cell, and people are talking about uh, about that being relevant for a a hypertension type receptor in the body but the the bottom line is that I suspect that if your cardiovascular system is not working brilliantly well and things start going wrong, um, it's harder to maintain. Um The body's function so if you need a vet if your respiratory system's not working and you've got underlying heart problems, the likelihood is that if the pumps aren't working as well as you'd like, then the outcome mm-hmm. is probably less good. now, the short term hypertension associated with EFTK therapy is not a, line, a a sign of underlying um, cardiovascular disease, it's a side effect of the drug, and so therefore I would not link those two
1: good. I think that's really, that's, that all be helpful for patients to hear that. I think that's good.
2: So Dina, what else? What haven't we covered? Major topics, questions, circumstances. Um, obviously it's an evolving field. You know, we could maybe regroup in two to four weeks and do this again, and hopefully we'll be smarter and be able to give more concrete advice. We can yeah, definitely be smarter.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one, one other question, you know, patients who are who are immunocompromised or patients who might wonder whether they're immunocompromised. These are patients who maybe had adverse events with, with immunotherapy and they've had to go on steroids. Um, you know, How do we define immunocompromised in these patients and um, you know, what would you be worried about for patients who maybe had an adverse event from ipinevo or one of the other combinations?
2: Yeah, what I don't know is how, you know, being on steroids affects your, you know, response to a virus or viral load or things like that. I, I can't imagine it's a good thing, you know, although obviously mm-hmm. some of the patients who are getting, um, you know, severe pulmonary infections called ARDS from this are put on steroids, but it's it's generally not helpful. So I don't, you know, again, I think it's more around your risk of just... Um, Having complications, being in the hospital, and, and being in a just compromised state in general—right, your ability to fight off an infection is is going to be weakened. It's the term "immunocompromised" is a very nebulous one. There's no blood test we can send to measure it. You know, it's not it's not quantifiable like from a clinical patient perspective, um, but yet we talk about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Tom,
0: I think we're just about done here. I think we've actually reached our time limit. Yeah. Dina, you've been uh, oh. really terrific um, and I hope Brian and I haven't talked too much. <laughs> um, I hope we've answered some of the questions. I think as Brian suggested before, we are going to get better at this as we learn more. There's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of concern out there there aren't any there aren't any super right or wrong answers to some of the questions you've asked, and most of it is based around common sense, good communication with your doctors, hand washing isolation and diving into massive cancer type treatment at this stage requires really careful consideration because we don't know where we're going to be in six weeks yeah right. agreed.
1: right this is really helpful thanks to both uh, yeah, of you right. i'm thanks grateful you. for the advice
0: thank you very much and see you take soon. Care. take care
1: take care